time. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for the day. I thank you that we get to gather here tonight and dig into the Word. It's such a privilege that by the work of the Spirit, you, you enable us to put sin to death. Um, you give us understanding in this, uh, this sword that you've given us, the Scriptures. And it's just a real privilege that we can gather here and we don't have to whisper. And we can dig into the Word and we can talk about how great our God is. And we can talk about the redemption we have in Christ. And we can talk about the eternity that awaits. And uh, tonight, as we take a very sober look at some things, I pray that you would guide our time. Got a few things that we want to pray for before we even dig into the study. We'd like to pray for uh, uh, Bill Ruth and his family as uh, he's mourning the uh, loss of his sister and a very just unexpected. Uh, I pray that you would be their comfort and their peace uh, through this. God, even tonight as we uh, look at uh, those kinds of losses, I pray that tonight would be a sobering study. I pray that it would be a time where we uh, are able to very humbly uh, look at the reality of, of things that we don't want to look at the reality of every day and that it would cause us to, to look to you and to look to our eternity. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're in Genesis 23 and uh, uh, Tonight, we're coming to the end of Abraham and Sarah, which is kind of crazy. We've been looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah for months now, uh, since chapter 12. Uh, We're coming to the end of the earthly life of Abraham and Sarah, because Sarah dies. Uh, For 12 chapters, we've covered a total of 62 years of the life of Abraham and Sarah. 12 chapters, 62 years. Isaac is actually about 37 right now, and we're in the place we're studying, and we followed the life of Abraham and Sarah, seeing what it means to be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, trusting God's promises. God has showed us so much about himself through the life of Abraham and Sarah. He showed us so much about uh, his eternal plan through Abraham and Sarah. And so it's, it's interesting, it's, it's, I'm almost kind of sad tonight in a, in a sense uh, that we're coming to the end of Abraham and Sarah as Sarah dies in chapter 23. Uh, But before we look at the text, uh, I want us to take a few minutes to reflect together uh, on what we've learned about God and about ourselves uh, and about others as we followed the life of Abraham and Sarah. So I actually want to take a minute before we dive into this text. Uh, I'm telling you ahead of time, Sarah dies. So we're looking at the end of the life uh, of, of uh, of their earthly life together. But I want us to take a few minutes to reflect on the things that we've learned. Again, 62 years of their life we've looked at. We've looked at God patiently walking with them. It's been 12 chapters that we've, that we've been digging in. So this would be the point where you can either look back in your notes or just turn back and look at some of the titles. And I want, I want us together to think about the things we've learned, the, the, the bullet points even that have stuck in our heads uh, that God has revealed to us about himself, about us, and about others through the life of Abraham and Sarah. So feel free to look back in the text, look back at your notes, and share what it is that, uh, that has kind of stuck out, anything. There's a number of things that can be shared. Well, I'll start us out. Um, the first thing is God always keeps his what? His promises. That's like this huge theme that has just stuck with me through this study that uh, no matter how f- foolish we can be sometimes in our, in our most ignorant moments, God can take it and turn it, use it for good as he promises uh, that he says he uh, that he says he will, and then he also 
Any promise that he makes, he keeps it. There's never a point where he does not keep his promises. That's something that's kind of stuck out to me through this study. What are some other things? Abraham resting. Yeah, the beautiful picture that God has, we're not called to a life of rest. If we think we're called to a life of rest, then we'll never enjoy the seasons of rest. That, we, that was when we painted the picture of the guy who goes on vacation and can't enjoy the vacation because he knows it's going to end in seven days and it's going to be bad and he's going to have to get back to it. But God gives us those seasons of rest. And we saw that with Abraham as he, uh, as he settled um, there in Beersheba. It's a journey. A journey with a bunch of ups and downs. It also keeps us mindful that the point of the story is don't be like Abraham, but set your hope in the God of Abraham. What else? 62 years. That's a long time. rich yeah God wasn't scared of Sarah too it was that was God's plan the whole time yeah I'd say she showed great patience in Egypt yeah oh Yeah. 
bridge. Yeah, the children of God are fueled by God's promises. We can't say we're children, we're children of the promise and not know what the promises are, not really care about the promises or if they come true or what, what they consist of. And, and you see Abraham going, going back to those promises, and they comfort him, they comfort his children, they comfort his wife. Fully consumed, yeah. Helps us with the dailiness of it. I, it's easy for me to daily see my failings, but to consider the greatness of God and how he, His greatness is way, way greater than my worst day, that helps me in the dailiness of putting sin to death. Any other points that have stuck in your heads from looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah? He doesn't place heavy burdens on light shoulders. A picture of his mercies being new every morning. Mercy, uh, his mercies are new every morning because that's what that day needs. Yesterday's mercies won't do. Tomorrow's mercies aren't necessary yet. You need today's mercies for today's troubles. And that's, that's a sweet picture to know that whatever you're in, it's not too huge. God didn't have his head turned when, when whatever happened, happened.
We're talking directly about that tonight, Abraham's trust in that future city. Before we go on, is there any anything else anyone wants to share? Or that if he did, God was bigger than his dad and bring him back to life or something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, trust his father's leadership. Yeah. That stuck out to me too because God calls me to do something hard tomorrow. I'm going to do my best to sleep in and drag my feet, have an extra cup of coffee, really get ready. But, man, Abraham models this, the hardest hardest test of his life, and gets up early and, and gets to it. That's a beautiful picture of obedience. Tonight we're going to be continuing to look at uh, that future city and kind of how they modeled it in their life. And it's cool because here in Sarah's death it's modeled as well. It's really beautiful. Um, uh, we're going to look at Genesis uh, 22, the very end, through 23. And before we look at it, I want to ask the question, is there anybody in here who hasn't buried a loved one, someone you're close to, be it family or a close friend? Is there anybody in here who has never buried a loved one? So everyone in here has, has buried a loved one in a sense. So tonight as we read this, I want you all to climb into the story. I want you all to climb into what Abraham's experiencing here. Look at his, his responses and how his responses are, uh, are so God-centered. And, and obviously that's the work of God in his life. So as we read through this, consider some of the things you've experienced in those same scenarios, in, in the death of a loved one and all the things that follow and the emotions and the fears and, and the, the awkward moments and, and whatever else there might be. Consider those things as, as we look at this. So Genesis 22, verse 20, the very end of chapter. It says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Booz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Macha. Y'all got that? We all clear on that. Good. Let's go to chapter 23. We'll come back to that. It's actually important. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. <clears throat> no, my lord, hear me. 
I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Okay, let's go back to chapter 22, and we're going to walk through this. In chapter 22, at the very end, like all genealogies, at first, the end of chapter 22 seems kind of like a meaningless assertion with a bunch of names that we're never going to remember. But the importance of it is this. It's through these names that we uh, understand where Rebecca comes from. And Rebecca is important. See, in Genesis 22, what happened um, as, as Abraham and Isaac sat and looked at the Lord's provision, we kind of saw at that point that it was no longer just the God of Abraham. But at that moment, you saw them both worshiping together because of God's provision. And it was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. In chapter 22, there was a transition that was made there. And so at the end of 22, we see this genealogy because it tells us where Rebekah comes from because that's who Isaac marries in the next chapter. So that's there so that we're well informed so that as we make this transition from looking at God's work in the life of Abraham and Sarah, we can be informed as we make the transition to look at God's work in the life of Isaac and Rebekah. And so that's why that's there. That's why that's important. It's not just weird names that we'll never remember. Going on to Genesis uh, 23, verses 1 and 2, it says, Sarah was 127 years old. It's likely that she simply died of old age. They'd had a long, good life. Uh, Abraham's initial response to go in, uh, his initial response was to go in and weep and to mourn. That's a pretty normal response when someone passes away. I've been with a handful of people when they got news that a loved one had died. The very natural, the very initial response is to weep and to mourn. It's a very sobering time. I kind of want us to climb into that. I don't want tonight to be a downer like you have been to a funeral and it's, and it's sad. But I do want us to climb into this because I want us to feel the, the, the humility that comes about at that point. The, very, the reality of death. Uh, the sober reality of what's going on. And so here she's 127. She dies and Abraham goes in to weep and to mourn for her. Um, I remember the first time that I, ha- I came to the reality that my, that my parents were going to die. I remember it like yesterday. I was, I was a little kid, and we were watching Field of Dreams. Has everyone seen Field of Dreams? Kevin Costner builds a baseball. It was bizarre. I, I don't know how all the p- points connected, but I remember watching it. And I remember at the end of the movie, Kevin Costner's out there, and he's throwing the ball with his dad. It's this cool thing where it comes to this point in the movie where he's never played you know, he's never played catch with his dad, and he gets, he gets to do this because these 
ghost-like beings. It's not true. It's a movie. But the ghost-like beings the, 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 from the past come out, and the, something about the field draws them out of death to play again. It's a great movie. And so they're playing ball. And when they're done playing ball, his dad turns around, and he walks out, and he walks through the outfield and into the cornfield, and he's gone. And I remember it was so sobering. I looked at my dad. I mean, I just broke down, bawling, crying. It was the first time that I realized my parents would die. It was, it was the most sobering reality. And I cried, and I cried, and then I kept crying when I went down the line, and I was like, wait, but if you die, I'm going to die. And so it was just kind of this natural progression, like, oh man, you're going to die, I'm going to die. And it was very sobering. And I look back on it, I think it's weird that Field of Dreams was what caused that realization, but I, I remember it like it was yesterday for the main reason that it was so sobering. It, I was so in touch with the reality of death at that moment uh, for the first time in my life that it stuck. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Field of dreams. Um, looking at this, I want you all to think about that very sobering reality. When, when he got news, he wasn't there. So he, he gets the news that his wife had died. And he goes to weep for her and mourn for her and take care of the things that need to be taken care of. And as he goes, think about all the things that we just talked about before the study started. We were looking back at the life of Abraham and Sarah. All the things that we learned about God. All the things that we learned about ourselves. All the things that we learned about other people. Every one of those things that we mentioned are one of his sweet memories. So that sobering reality of she's gone and he's looking back at his life and he's thinking about the good days and the bad days and God's provision again and again and again and God's beautiful consistency and never breaking his promises. All those things we mentioned are sweet memories for Abraham as he's dealing with the death of his wife. One scholar said of Abraham and Sarah, it's a little wordy but it's really beautiful if we can get through it. He says, but few have been so strangely bound together as these two were, or have been so manifestly given to one another by God, or have been forced to so close a mutual dependence. Not only had they grown up in the same family and been separated from their kindred when they were called to leave the the home of their fathers and passed through unusual and difficult circumstances together, but they were made co-heirs of God's promise in such a manner that neither could enjoy it without the other. They were knit together not merely by natural liking and familiarity of intercourse, but by God's choosing them as the instrument of His work and the fountain of His salvation. So that in Sarah's death, Abraham doubtless read an intimation that his own work was done and that his generation is now out of date and ready to be supplanted, which the next chapter we begin to look at the life of Isaac and his family. It's interesting, you see this picture of them and how they were brought together and how it's really unique. It's this beginning, kind of this fountain of God's covenant and how he deals with his people and lives with his people and interacts with his people. And it's almost reminiscent of the garden where that just wasn't a guy and a girl at a bar, thought you were cute, got your number, we got married, had kids, learned to live together. It's so much more than that. The picture in the garden was she came from Adam's side. God brought them together like The heavenly father was the one who walked the bride down the aisle and brought them together. And Adam's first words are love poetry, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The oneness that was there was unique in that God brought it together. What I want us to see tonight is that what we see here with Abraham and Sarah, this beauty, this life that was brought together by God, it is unique, but it's not totally different from the the one anotherness that that you guys have with your spouses, that we have with our spouses in Christ. 
The unity that we have in Christ is closer than any unity that we could ever create. And so it's interesting because we look at Abraham and we look at Sarah and I'm thinking, man, the way he deals with everything in this chapter and he loves his wife and he honors her and he mourns for her and he weeps for her and there's all these sweet memories. At the end of my life, I want that to be true and I know that it can be because of the unity that we have in Christ. So while theirs is unique and that it was kind of the fountain, the, 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 the fountain spring, the beginning of God's covenant with his people, it's not totally different from what we have with, with our spouses. Now in transitioning, I have a question. Has anyone ever been to a funeral for someone that they didn't know very well? You ever been to a funeral of someone you didn't know very well? It's interesting because I, I've, I've, gone to, I've been there you know, to a funeral of a family member maybe I didn't know very well, but their family, so we're all going to pack up and we're going to go. Or, or a friend who needed a you know, someone to just go with them to a funeral of, of, of a friend of theirs or, or a loved one. And it's interesting what we can learn about a person's life by the responses uh, of their family and friends in their death. And probably more important is what others say about God in their death. So you can go to a funeral for someone that you didn't know very well, and you can learn a lot about them and a lot about what, what maybe their view of God was and what the people around them, how they were influenced in their view of God by what they say about God in that person's death. Tonight, what I want us to do is approach the rest of this chapter as if we're sitting at Sarah's funeral. We haven't met Sarah. Yeah, we spent 62 years with them here in 12 chapters of text, but we haven't met her. So I want us to look at the response of her closest loved one and see what we can learn about God. We can learn a lot about God, about people, about others, about ourselves, and about God's design if we look at how her closest loved one responds. So look at verse 3. This is the, where we see the response. Verses 3 through 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. It's interesting he refers to her as my dead not my wife. You almost see this. There's a very real change in the way things are in her death. And here, Abraham faces the sobering reality that everyone faces upon the, lo- the loss of a loved one, and that you've got to take care of burial arrangements. That's one of the first things he does. If any of y'all have, uh, had, a, had a loved one, someone you're close to, maybe a parent pass away, it's, it's awkward because you're mourning, and one of the most immediate things you've got to do within a few hours of your loved one passing away is you've got to take care of burial arrangements. And it's the same thing for Abraham here. It always seems trivial and it always seems awkward. Here you are mourning the loss of a loved one and trying to pick out a casket that's not too expensive but not cheap. You know, you're trying to like weigh a good financial decision while you're mourning the loss of a loved one. And it's awkward and it seems trivial. But it's real. And here we see it in the life of Abraham uh, trying to figure out uh, what to do. You know, for us, we have to take care of arrangements of a hearse, a vault, a plot, the service, transportation, um, and all of this with some confusing emotions. There's, there's a lot of confusing emotions at that time. If you've ever lost a loved one and you're mourning and you're having to take care of these things, it's interesting in the uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary, he makes a really great observation. He says, there's something within us which rebels against the ordinary ongoing of the world side by side with our greatest woe. So uh, when something like that happens, you're experiencing a loss that just cuts to your heart and your soul, and you're experiencing emotions that are, that are very real, and it's very sobering, and you're, it's not that you're out of touch with reality, it's that reality is setting in so heavily that you're just feeling it in a way that is maybe very unique to your life. He's saying it's hard for us to just go on 
with the regular ongoings of the world right next to that. It's, it's awkward. He says, we feel as if either the whole world must mourn with us. You know, you go to the office, you know, after that, go back to work, and you feel like everyone should be mourning. Like, why are they laughing? You know, don't they know what happened? Like the whole world must mourn with us, or we must go aside from the world and have our grief out in private. The bustle of life seems so meaningless and incongruous to one whom grief has emptied of all of the relish for it. We seem to wrong the dead by every return of interest we show in the meanings or in the things of life which no longer interest the one who has died. It's kind of like after someone dies, and maybe even that day, something's happened, and you find yourself laughing, and you kind of stop. You're, you're saying, it just doesn't feel right to laugh today, when there may be nothing wrong with it. But there's these emotions when you, ah, it just doesn't feel right to laugh. You know, we're mourning the death of a loved one. Like feeling guilty about laughing, feeling guilty about uh, joking. Uh, Things like they're not supposed to seem funny because we're supposed to be sad. But he goes on, he says, we must resume our duties. Not as if nothing had happened. Not proudly forgetting death and putting grief aside as if this life did not need the chastening influence of such realities as we have been engaged with, or as if its busyness could not be pursued in an affectionate and softened spirit, but acknowledging death is real and is humbling and is sobering. What he's saying is that it's not saying just don't act like anything's wrong, but go about it in the right way. Let it sober you. Let, it, let realities fall on you that are not normal to every other day and, and, and move forward with the things you have to do. So the approach here, and it's the approach we see in Abraham, it's a very real, it's a humbling, and it's a sober, repro- a sober approach, even though there's all kinds of emotions going on. See, Abraham doesn't have a wrestling, though. He doesn't have a Peter's funeral home or whoever else's funeral home. He doesn't have that. In fact, Abraham even lives in a place where he's not even allowed, really, to own property to bury his dead. He's a foreigner. He's a sojourner. He's not allowed to own property or a tomb. So he goes to the city gate. The city gate, we've learned that that's where business is taken care of. The city business, like people of influence hang out there. If there's big decisions made, legal decisions where they need witnesses, they do it at the city gate. And the people who are there are just able to say, yeah, he said that. He, he did that. He, they, they made that exchange. That's, that's legal. That happens in the city gate. So Abraham soberly goes to the city gate where business is done in the midst of witnesses, and he appeals to the Hittites there. He makes an appeal. His words in verse 4 Look at him. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. What's the normal custom if someone dies in another country? What's the normal custom? If you're in another country that you're not a citizen of and you die, what, what normally happens? Yeah. Bring you back. Ship you back so you can be buried in your homeland. Why does this not work for Abraham? He has no homeland. Why does he not have a homeland? By who? God. God said, leave the land of your fathers. So here, the, a normal custom, even today, is if you die in another country, you don't just find a burial plot there and go ahead and take care of business. Usually, usually you're brought back to your homeland. But here, Abraham is a soldier. He doesn't have a homeland. And so he's got to take care of business, though. He's got he's to bury his dead. He's got to to take care of Sarah's body. Interestingly and appropriately, Abraham's confession here shows his motive. The approach that he takes, see what I want us to see is that as we look at what's going on in this chapter, there's a lot of very practical, wise, discerning things that Abraham does that we can learn from. 
Now, there's also a very real spiritual, eternal element to this whole chapter. But look at some of the wise, discerning things he does. His confession shows his motive. He says, what does he say in verse 4? I am what? I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm a foreigner among you. See, what he's saying here is my aim is not to gain a meadow for my livestock to graze or fields to plant and harvest. I have no intention as a sojourner and foreigner to try and gain an equal or even greater standing than you guys. I'm not a Hittite. I don't want to be a Hittite, and I don't want to take over your land. So he goes before him in a very wise way. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. Please give me land to bury my dead. I simply want to bury my dead. How does this inform us as sojourners living in a land that's not our own? This is not our home. We've established this multiple times. This earth is not our home. Where's our promised land? Heaven. Heaven is our promised land. That's our aim. That's where we desire to dwell eternally. So how does this inform us in our dealings in this world? Our aim is not to outdo the guy over here or to get enough land so that I'm in equal footing or maybe even just competition or to just have you know, selfish gains so that people might think that we're great. Here we can learn from this. He's showing great wisdom and he goes on in verses 5 and 6, which are pretty crazy. The Hittites answered him, Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God. The Hebrew uh, custom was anything that was good, they would just equate it to kind of a deity thing. Oh, you're a prince of God. And so it's kind of throwing around words. They don't really see him as a prince of God in the sense of real like God, you and God. But it's, it's a good thing. Humongous, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Can you imagine going to make funeral arrangements? You're mourning the death of a loved one. Can you imagine going and making funeral arrangements and hearing the owner say, don't worry about it. It's on me. It's on me. Seriously. No, don't worry about it. In fact, choose a plot. Choose a casket. You let us know what you need and we'll provide it free of charge. You just let us know. Can you imagine? What that would be like? Can you imagine music that would be to the ears of the loved one who just moments before has said, this is the last thing I want to be doing right now. I've heard that so many times when someone's making burial arrangements for a loved one. This is the last thing I want to be doing right now. Can you imagine the music to their ears, hearing the owner of all the stuff you got to go through? We got it. It's on us. Pick out what you want. Let us know what you need. I probably would have given the old, oh, the Lord does provide. Let's go. I want that one, that one, that one. Let's get this done. That's probably what my response would have been. Verse 7, though, is not Abraham's response. Abraham rose. He bowed to the Hittites. Picture of humility. A picture of I am not here to try and swoop in on your land and try and be an equal with you. This is not even my home, and I don't want to make it my home necessarily. He goes in and he says, um, in verse 7, Abraham rose, bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of this field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. I must admit, the first time I read this, I thought to myself, Abraham, pull your head out, buddy. S- seriously, you're going to pass that up? 
They offered it to you for free. And so now, Abraham, you're crazy. They're offering it to you for free. Don't you understand what's going on? But rather than stupidity, what Abraham's showing here is great wisdom and discernment. Great wisdom and discernment. I learned from this as I read this. Why do you think he de- declined the seemingly generous offer? Why do you think he did that? He didn't know their motives. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. What has God already promised to Abraham? The promised land. Okay. Who has provided the resources that Abraham has to purchase the cave? God, by way of even dumb mistakes. He left Egypt with a, with a bankroll. Who has made Abraham's name great? Remember God saying, I will make your name great. Some men try to make their own name great. Some men shrink back at it. But God says, I will make your name great. So here we have a God who has promised him the land that they're in, a God who has provided for him the means that he needs to be able to pay for the cave and not worry about it, and a God who has made Abraham's name great so that he might be in the situation in the first place to even be able to be considered to purchase the land. If some no-name goober came up, hey, I want to purchase land to bury my dead, they probably said, no, but Abraham... His name had been made great by God who had promised him the land in the first place. The point is, there is no good reason in Abraham laying himself under obligation to them in so small a matter. This is not a huge matter in in proportion to the big picture. Why would he lay himself under obligation to them? To be under obligation to the Hittites. Another pastor stated, What God had promised as his own peculiar gift must never seem to be given by men. Abraham could not bear to think that any captious person, a captious person is the fault finder. The captious person is the one who raises petty objections all the time. He's saying, even for that petty person, I don't want that petty person to ever be able to say that the inheritance promised by God was really the gift of a Hittite. Abraham showed great wisdom and discernment. I mean, consider having that that mindfulness In that situation, you're mourning the death of a loved one. You just said, this is the last thing I want to be doing. The person in charge says, free of charge, take what you need. And he has the mindfulness to say, no, this is God's promise. God promised me this. God's my provider, not this Hittite. I'm I'm not going to do business that way. See, sometimes we're so eager to lay hold of the thing that we think will make us happy or the thing that we really need. Sometimes we're just so worried about being provided for that we do not care what anyone thinks about God's provision. We only care that we're provided for. God's our provider. I'm guilty of this. I've been so guilty of this in early years of marriage and uh, previous to marriage, thinking that, oh, I just, just, I just got to make sure I'm provided for, or I'm providing for the family or whatever. And you can do that in such a way that all you care about is the provision, and you don't care what anybody thinks about, about God being your provider. And Abraham shows us great wisdom in this and that he dealt in such a way that he said, I'm not going to be under obligation to a Hittite. God made this promise. God's my provider. I want everyone at the end of this deal to not look at me or that Hittite, but to God who made this whole thing happen. And so Abraham says, I don't want it for free. I don't even want a discount. Please let me pay full price. That is so otherworldly. That is so uncultural. Like, some of us might have the mindfulness, no, it's not right that it's free, but if you want to discount it, that's fine. I'll accept the discount. 
Here, Abraham says, I don't want it for free. I don't want a discount. Please, please, in the hearing of the witnesses here at the city gate, please let me pay full price. It's so not normal. Verses 10 through 16. Here we see some true colors. Because Abraham is eager for God to get the glory. Not himself, not the Hittite, but God, who's made his name great. Verses 10 through 16 say this. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered above, uh, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field, and I give you the cave that is in it. And the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. For all the witnesses here in the city gate, I, Ephron, am giving you this field for free. Accept it from me. Uh, uh, and here, uh, he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people in the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. I don't want it for free. I don't want a discount. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Well, what's that? I picture gangsters. Well, what's a what's thousand dollars between you and me? I don't know why that's what I picture. But I hear him say, what's that between you and me? We're, we're friends. We're family. Um, bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. They didn't have coins at this time. They had to weigh out the silver. What's interesting here is that Ephron, one of these seemingly generous guys, he swings it in such a way that he not only makes money off the cave, he makes money off the field. Abraham didn't need a field. He didn't want a field. He didn't have any interest in the field. But this seemingly generous guy, hey, I'll give you the cave and the field that's in it. Or the field and the cave. But they're both yours. He swings it in such a way, but it's seemingly generous, that he swindles and he, and he in a dishonest way, provides gain for himself makes money off the cave and the field that goes with the cave. Abraham never asked for that. And then he voices a price in the hearing of the witnesses that is far above the worth of the field and cave. Overpriced friendliness for the sake of dishonest gain. It'd be like someone saying, man, I really need a, a shirt, a green shirt. I really need a green shirt. Can I, um, I'd like to buy that one from you. I just need a green shirt. Oh, this, what's this between you and me? You, you can have my green shirt. What's it, what's it between you and me? It's a green shirt. No, really, I want to pay full price. Oh, come on. What is $150 between you and me? What's $150? It's ridiculous. That's what's going on here. The field is not worth that. Different commentators say different things. Different commentators have said that, uh, that some have said that was at least double. Some commentators have said up to eight times the price. Some have said even larger than that. The point is, the field was not even remotely worth that. It'd be like me trying to friendly way tell everybody, hey, I gave him a, a jalopy car. What, what's $18,000 between you and me? It's, it's ridiculous what's going on here. Overpriced friendliness for the sake of dishonest gain. Abraham does not get wrapped up in it, though. Y'all see what Abraham does? It's like, I got you. 400 Okay. And he weighs it out. He doesn't get wrapped up in the worldly junk. He doesn't get wrapped up even though this dude is ripping him off. Abraham doesn't go, ah, 400? He doesn't start haggling with him. He just weighs it out quietly. Goes about his business because he's not there to find a deal. He's there to take care of his wife, whom he loves. Verses 17 through 20 are sort of a legal document. 
that states what's happened. Verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over. It's kind of like you're reading a deed on a piece of property. Like, there's some real details here because we want to make sure that everybody knows everything's clear. It was made over, the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. So it's like, on this day, at the gate, before these witnesses, this happened. And in case you didn't get it the first time, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave, that is in it, were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place for the, by the Hittites. I mean, it's, it's really detailed. It's like a legal document, kind of like a deed. Why do you think it is wise to be about the details in such an endeavor? Why do you think the details are important here? Why are they even included? Why did Abraham give a rip about the details? Couldn't be disputed. That is so important here. Because Abraham's called to a particular calling here. Uh, the Expositor's Bible says the best way to maintain friendly relations with the Hittites and whose land he was sojourning, the best way to maintain friendly relations was to leave no loophole by which indifference of opinion or disagreement might enter. He didn't need anyone coming back later saying, hey, 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 move your dead bodies. That wasn't the deal. That wasn't what he wanted. To maintain the friendly relations that were going on there, to maintain the standing that he had, he needed to pay attention to the details. He shows great wisdom and discernment for us to pay attention to the details in, in legal things and business dealings. Law probably does more to prevent quarrels than to heal them. So, legal documents seem no doubt harsh and unfriendly, but really are more effective in maintaining peace and friendliness than vague promises and benevolent intentions. I've, I've talked to different people who something turned out like it was so good and then it was weird. Like someone said, oh, no, you can have the car, you can use the car. And then something happens on the car and it breaks. And it's like, well, this isn't my car, this is your car. You should fix the car. But I let you have the car. You're the one who broke the car. It gets into this mess. I've seen land disputes between people. I was picturing, I was thinking of a, like if a home builder, if Jeff Ott came and said, uh, hey, Scott, you know, i got some land right here. Why don't you build, you build a house there? That's fine. Let me know what you need. We'll do it. It would be much better for me to maintain the friendship that I have with Jeff Ott to be about the details. Not say, okay, let's do this. And then afterwards, we're looking at it saying, now how far do I mow? Is, are you going to mow that? Uh, you know, I mean, what are the details here? We need to be about the details. It maintains the friendliness. It maintains the good standing. And it really helps for there to be no confusion. So it's, it's more of preventing quarrels than to heal them so that you can be about the business that you're set about as God has you in the world. We don't, we're not called to get wrapped up into these things if we, can, if we can possibly steer clear of it, if it's even possible. So in this chapter, we're modeled a sober, wise, God-focused approach to dealing in the world, maybe during hard times as sojourners, as citizens of another country trying to take care of responsibilities in a wise, sober, and discerning way. Abraham models all these things. But it's not all that we get from this chapter. Turn to Hebrews 11 real quick. That's what we'll be closing with. In Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. It says, By faith, in verse 8, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, not the Hittites. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, he was old, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died, consider Sarah's death here, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, just as Abraham acknowledged in his dealing with the Hittites. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But when she died, he didn't say, let's go back to the homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What is Abraham looking forward to? Yeah, the city to come. He says the city that has foundations, because he knows that the foundations that have been built in the greatest cities here on earth will crumble. He wants the builder to be God so that they don't crumble. In acknowledging that he was a stranger in exile in the land of the Hittites, what was Abraham really expressing? That I'm a stranger in exile on earth. That's what he was really expressing. What is the better country he desires? Just to make sure we're on the same page. Heaven. That's the better country he desires. The place where foundations have been built by God. And they don't crumble. If the earthly promised land was all there was, if it was all that God had prepared for His people, verse 16 would be different. When it says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. I want us to see the link between God not being ashamed to be called their God and what He has prepared for them eternally. Possibly, uh, here, there's a quote I wanted to read you. says, if death is to end this, what more has life been to any of us than a seed time without a harvest, an education without any sphere of employment, a vision of good that can never be ours, a striving after the unattainable. If this, this land, this earthly land is all that God can give us, we must indeed be disappointed in it. But he's disappointed in us if we do not aspire to more than this. In this sense, also, he is ashamed to be called our God. He's ashamed to be known as the God of men who never aspire to higher blessings than earthly comfort and present prosperity. See, this verse says he is not ashamed to be called our God because he has prepared for us an eternal city. So the implication is that because he's prepared an eternal dwelling for us in our promised land, that raises our expectations. We're not satisfied with this lame place. We're not satisfied. This doesn't please us to full capacity. When he says, I am your God, and I have prepared an eternal dwelling for you, that raises our expectations. So the point of sharing the gospel with people is not that they can have a fun time here on this earth. The point of sharing the gospel with people, the point of engaging it ourselves is that we would have a better understanding of what it means to have a heavenly God who's prepared a place for us, a heavenly dwelling for us. Because he's done that, our expectation, what we should aspire to, should be raised. We should not be it would, that would be like Abraham saying, hey, I'm, you know what? This has been hard. I'm, it's in my, can I just be a Hittite? I just want to be a Hittite. 
can I have some land? Can I let my cat? I want to buy it. I want it to be in my name because I want to be a Hittite. That would be like what we would be saying if we didn't aspire to the things that God wants us to aspire to. And it's directly connected to the fact he's not ashamed to be called our God. So interestingly, in her death, what does Sarah actually begin to lay hold of rather than lose in her death? The promises. The promised land. It's so, it's interesting. You think, oh man, she died. Mm, too bad. 127, that's pretty good, but maybe she needed longer. No. In her death is when she actually began to lay hold of the promises. What Abraham proclaimed upon purchasing this place for burial, he proclaimed two things that we'll close with. First thing he proclaimed is, I believe this country, this promised land, will remain the country of my people and family. So the implication for us would be, if we live for the heavenly place that God has prepared for us, we're saying that our aim is that heaven would be the true dwelling place for our children and our grandchildren. See, that's his aim. He's thinking, hey, when they come and visit grandpa's grave, they're going to come here to the promised land, and they're going to think about God. Our promised land is heaven. So if we're living for the time to come for heaven, what we're saying is that our hope and our aim and our goal is that when our grandchildren and our children come to visit, this is where they're going to come. And the second thing is that this is the place that the future generations will come to visit, much like a grandfather picking out a grave plot for himself and his wife and his sons and his grandchildren. I remember when my papa, before he had passed away, they went out and they picked out a plot uh, at a cemetery in Dallas, and he, he was kind of explaining to me, he was like, you know, I like this because... We can get the family here, and I just thought it was weird. He was like, I'm going to give that one as a gift to someone. I was like, that's a horrible gift, man. I don't understand that. <laughs> but he's going through this, and he's explaining it, and he says, you know, I love that there's this tree here so that when you all come to visit me years after I'm dead, there's this beautiful tree, and there's a bench here, and you can sit and, and think. And I remember he was explaining those things. And that's kind of the same thing we have going on here with Abraham. He's saying, I, I want my children to come back here. This is the promised land. I don't care about owning property, just owning property, but this is God's promise. And look at how he's provided it. A foreigner, a sojourner, in a land where I shouldn't be able to have it. I shouldn't be able to have a burying place for my dead. This is where we're going to bury my wife. And this is the beginning of a new era. This is, this is where when they think about the covenant and they think about God's provision, they come and visit and they think about the future generations and they tell the great, great, great grandkids about what God did with Father Abraham. That this is where they're going to come. Our aim is heaven. That's what we should hope. One said, so does this place of the dead become henceforth the center of attraction for all of Abraham's seed, to which still from Egypt their longings and their hopes turn as to one magnetic point which having once been fixed there binds them to that land. If the promised land for Abraham is representative of heaven for us, we're saying that we want to live in such a way as to communicate to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that when you remember your ancestors, like great-grandkids, when you remember me, don't set your mind on a graveyard. Don't, don't think about the earth. And don't even think about the city. Because we're, we're, we're living for the time to come, for, the, for the, our promised land, heaven. So we're saying, don't set your mind on a graveyard, but on heaven, the promised land of the children of God, so that even in our death, we're pointing our future generations to God when we live in that way. So even as in our death, we're somehow we're communicating the beauty of the gospel to great-grandkids that we may never meet because maybe their mommy and daddy will say, you know, this is just a piece of land and this is not our home and there's an eternal dwelling. And so it points to heaven. Uh, one said, it's only by death that we can enter fully into all that God intends for us to receive. And it's interesting because I was thinking, man, I want to go visit Abraham's grave. 
Because I was thinking in earthly terms. That was the first thing I thought of. It was so funny how quickly it was crushed. Because you know what it is today? Does anyone know? A mosque. Abraham's grave today is a mosque. Let that be a reminder that Christ will return and our promised land is heaven, not this earth. So this whole thing tonight is, is, is beautiful in that we see in Abraham's dealings wisdom and discernment and how to live as a sojourner on earth, but then we see this more eternal focus of these future generations so as to live in such a way that we're pointing to God even in our death. Anyone have any thoughts or ideas or other things you want to share? If it's 33,000 for a sewer, it's 33,000 for a sewer. Mm. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, it would have been an easy day for him to say, look, I am in mourning. I don't give a rip about wisdom or making a good decision or making a good small step here. <laughs> Just get it taken care of. But there was a much more of a mindfulness there to glorify God. That's sowing the seeds, I think, from Sunday. about It's seeds. God will not be, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. We don't sow big monster seeds. They're, they're small things regularly. All right, well, next week we move on to starting to look at the life of Isaac. So tonight we say good night to Abraham and Sarah. So let's pray and thank God for our time. 
God, we thank you for, uh, for your goodness, for your provision. I thank you that you have, um, in your provision and in your sovereignty, you've modeled for, for us through guys like Abraham in hard seasons um, how we can deal diligently uh, but wisely how even in things that just seem like a business transaction or a menial daily task that we have opportunity to, to use discernment in such a way that you're glorified and that you're honored and that in fact in such a way that future generations will be pointed to, to the eternal kingdom because of what happened in our death or the death of our loved ones. God, I'm thankful for the 62 years of life that we have recorded uh, with Abraham and Sarah that we got to just dig into and look at and, and learn from. And I'm thankful that you are their God and I'm thankful that you are our God. God, I thank you for your provision. I pray that we would never be so hasty to make decisions just foolishly in, on this earth. And we've had opportunities to do that today. We'll have opportunities to do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day to just live in an earthly way not being mindful of, uh, of the bigger thing that's going on. And so, God, I pray that you would make us, just as you showed Abraham through, through ups, and di- ups and downs and good days and bad days, just as you showed him that you are a God who can be trusted, who is a provider, that here he's looking to glorify you even in one of his, maybe his saddest moments that he, that he had experienced. A lot of times in our sad moments, we have a tendency to, to withdraw and maybe wonder why you've done what you've done. But I pray that in this model that you've given us in Abraham, that rather than doing that, that we would be continually aware of your presence uh, and thankful for your provision and eager to glorify you in everything. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.